think God gave us instruments uh, to help the melodious sonnet um, because uh, it just, I mean, those of you who are old enough to see the movie Titanic, without Celine Dion, that movie doesn't go anywhere. Um, but sometimes it is just really beautiful just to hear the voices that God created singing his worship. And so thank you so much for uh, putting up with us the last couple weeks uh, while Don's been recovering from COVID. So um, I'm, I believe he'll be back next Sunday. So, um, but uh, it's been a real joy to, especially when I have my, my backup. Uh, we, we've often kidded like when, like when we were out at Fort Lyon and my kids would get up and sing with me that we were the Von Trapp McDaniel family singers. Uh, except we're not having to flee over the mountains because there's no mountains to flee over. So um, this morning's sermon um, is going to be a geography lesson. It is going to be a biblical translation lesson. And it's going to be a little bit of a church history lesson. And that'll all be before we really get to my three sermon points. Uh, so... Um, um, there's not a whole lot to just the ascension, but when we start setting the table, setting the backstory, things like that, which will carry us all the way through in what we've already started in the book of Acts. So um, our text this morning is uh, Acts 1, uh, 4 through 12. Uh, but let me open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just come before you today, Lord, and we're just so grateful and thankful to be able to celebrate together, to worship together. At least here in the United States, for the most part, we can still do that encumbrance-free. We can still do that without threat or harm by our government or by people around us who don't like the message. Uh, I do believe that those days are coming. And Lord, we, uh, we stand with our brothers and sisters around the world today, or if their, uh, their Sunday was yesterday, who stood and proclaimed the gospel even in the face of persecution. Uh, Father, we are so grateful that your gospel message is still alive, still needed for every single person. And Father, that just the, pro the proclamation of your gospel message, uh, we are so thankful that we get to, to share with other brothers and sisters around the world who are doing the same thing. Father, we have more in common with somebody who's in India, who's Urdu speaking, who has totally different look and totally different culture, but we have more in common with them because they have the blood of Jesus Christ covering their sins than we do with some of our own physical family who we're connected to through DNA. Father, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Acts uh, 1, 4 through 12, and I'll explain why I'm jumping back to 4. Um, but... And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with, with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. When they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. So, again, we're just kind of doing a little setting the stage. Uh, as Pastor Scott mentioned last Sunday, this is, this is Luke's second letter to his dear friend Theophilus. And again, what we know about Theophilus is not much, but we, we have to assume that he's a young believer. Um, and Luke cares enough about this young believer that through the Holy Spirit, Luke writes a third of the New Testament to one man. God so cared for the discipleship of Theophilus that he allowed a whole third of the New Testament to be written first to, to Theophilus. Think about that. We have all these other letters by Paul on how to build the church, how to do church discipline, how to, how to do all these things. And then we, we also have the Gospels, the historical record of Jesus. But one third of the New Testament was written for one young believer's discipleship. That's how much God cares about individual believers and their discipleship to grow into the mature adult that they are supposed to be as a man or a woman of God. And so in Acts 1 through 3, Luke summarizes his, basically he summarizes all of 24 chapters of his first letter to Theophilus. And he just takes three verses to summarize it. I'm glad he didn't take three verses to tell us the whole book. But his summary to Theophilus is three, is three verses. And Luke is the only one who gives us a record of the ascension. Paul mentions that Jesus was raised, but he doesn't go into any kind of detail. Matthew, who, who walked with Jesus, doesn't give us. John, the disciple who his nickname was the one whom Jesus loved, doesn't tell us about the ascension. Only Luke, a Gentile that we talked about last week, that Scott talked about last week, a Gentile physician who is writing likely 30 years after it happened. So he wasn't even a firsthand witness. He, he is a witness, uh, obviously, through Paul as a travel companion with Paul, who Paul wasn't an eyewitness to it. Um, so Paul gets firsthand knowledge from probably Peter and from the direct uh, revelation that, that Christ gave to Paul. And so God uses a Gentile believer to tell us about the ascension when Christ left his earthly station to go back 
to being with the Father. And, and, and we'll see in a little bit how that confusion that the disciples had, that they still kind of think it's about this geopolitical nation called Israel. And I think what God is doing through using Luke to talk about the ascension is that he's showing it that God has always been about gathering his eternally elect from all time. It's not just about a geopolitical nation. So I do, we do have to go down a little bit of a rabbit trail here. Uh, again, I talked about that Matthew and John do not mention the ascension. Um, now, we do have, and even, even myself, I always just assumed Matthew's last words, the last commandment that he writes in Matthew 28, what we call the, the Great Commission, I just always assumed that that was probably given right before the ascension or at the ascension uh, because he talks about a mountain. But when you actually, when we look at the text and we allow the text to tell us, and, and this is something I'm always saying with my children, what do the scriptures say? And that is always has to be so if the scriptures go against our beliefs, then who needs to change? Us. And so even in, in, in preparing for this message, God is, was gently showing me what did the scriptures say. So the Great Commission in Matthew 28 clearly cannot be right before the ascension because the ascension um, we see in the verse is at Bethany. So this is part of the geographical lesson that you're going to get. So if this is Jerusalem, from your vantage point, Bethany is two miles southeast of Jerusalem. It's the, where the Mount of Olives is. Bethany is on the east, eastern slope of the mountain. That's where Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse, discourse or the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So Jerusalem, Bethany, two miles southeast. But Matthew uh, 8, 28, 16 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. So this Bethany would be in the region of Judea. And these, these regions are going to sound real familiar to our text today. Right above the region of Judea is the region of... Anyone have a guess from our, from our main text? Samaria. So Samaria was a region, a region filled with, they did not, the Samaritans and the, and the Israelites did not get along because the Samaritans were a mixed breed. That's where people would be robbed. We see this in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, and so people would like to try to avoid the, the region of Samaria. And then the region of Galilee is north of that. Nazareth is in the region of Galilee. And so, um, so when, after, uh, when Jesus takes the disciples to Galilee, and that's where we see in Matthew 28, he's actually a lot further north than where Jerusalem would be. Um, the mountain that overlooks the Sea of Galilee is Mount Arbel. Um, ten verses earlier, we know that the, that the disciples went to Galilee because at the empty tomb, the women were told, tell my brothers to find me in Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 80 miles as the crow flies from 
Jerusalem. And so, but they, they wouldn't have walked as the crow flies. There were two highways that went up to Galilee from Jerusalem. So the first highway takes you east to Bethany and then north. But going north, you have to go through Samaria, which was avoided. The second route is called the King's Highway. The King's Highway would take you seven miles northwest to Emmaus. That's also a town that we've heard of in, in, in Jesus' resurrection. And then from Emmaus, it would be like a sea, and they would work their way around Samaria to avoid Samaria and then go back up north uh, to the Sea of Galilee. And, um, so those would have been the two paths. So 80 miles as the crow flies, these, these other two highways are a lot longer. And so um, Luke tells us that the two men who encountered Jesus on the day of the resurrection said that they were going to, where were they going? To Emmaus. And so on the way to Emmaus, uh, it was seven miles, and they end up walking with the resurrected Jesus Christ on the very day of his resurrection. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us when they set out to Emmaus, but it had to have been, you know, it, it, it wasn't long because they're walking and they're amazed and they're shocked. And suddenly this man starts walking with them and, and like they're dumbfounded as to what has happened. And this man, who we know as the resurrected Jesus Christ, they don't know it yet, starts saying, what do you mean you don't understand this? And it says that on the trip to Emmaus, on the seven-mile journey, he starts talking to them and showing them through the scriptures that the Messiah had to be crucified. And, he, and, he, and then they get to Emmaus. And it says when they get to Emmaus, it was the end of the day. Because they pleaded with the stranger to lodge there with them and to dine with them. And so the stranger sits down with them and he breaks bread. And as he breaks bread, suddenly these two men realize we've been walking and talking with the resurrected Jesus all day long. And it says in him, he disappears. Poof, he's gone. And what do they do? It took them all day to walk seven miles. And it says that they got up that very hour and went back. They busted it back seven miles to get back to Jerusalem to tell the brothers, he is risen. And we were with him all day. And we were too stupid to realize that we were with him. <laughs> That's the extra biblical text. That's the, uh, the Dennis translation. So a trip, if, if it takes seven miles... All this has a point. If it takes seven miles to get to Emmaus, and it's an all-day journey or most of a day journey, how long do you think it takes to walk over 80 miles? You're talking a four- to seven-day trek on foot. Um, and we don't know, the Scripture doesn't tell us which route that they took to get to Galilee other than they knew that they needed to go up to Galilee. And so if Jesus only appears for 40 days after the resurrection, it is actually a beautiful picture when you look at it. Where did Jesus start his earthly ministry? Up in Galilee, where Nazareth is. The, the very first miracle that he does is at the wedding feast of Cana, which is right near the Sea of Galilee. 
And so Jesus' earthly ministry for three years has been moving from basically Galilee down to Jerusalem to die. And when we see the parallels that his 40-day last bit of ministry on earth starts in Galilee and it works its way down to Jerusalem for the ascension at Bethany. His 40-day his ministry is mirroring his three years of ministry. And so if it took four to seven days to travel, in 40 days, there's not a whole lot of time that the disciples are going to be making multiple trips, likely back and forth to the Sea of Galilee. And John's, John's version is, and it's, it's actually what we talked about in VBS, so John's version is the fishing story, which is a retelling of the, of the fishing story, and then it's the, the G, Peter denying Christ three times, but yet Jesus restoring Peter three times after a morning fish breakfast. And John says that that was on the Sea of Tiberias. The Sea of Tiberias is the far side of the Sea of Galilee. And, G, and, and Peter is restored three times. And that's the end. So Matthew's gospel ends up at the Sea of Galilee. John's gospel ends up at the Sea of Galilee. So very likely, John and Matthew's gospels end in the very first days of Jesus' 40-day ministry on earth. They don't, they don't even talk about it. And I mean, they're literally, it's, it's the end of their gospels. That's it. Now, it is ascribed to Mark that there is a recording of the ascension. However, there is a problem with Mark's gospel. And so we're going to talk a little bit about biblical textual criticism. Now, when I first heard the term, when I was going to seminary, I thought, you're criticizing the Bible? That's not what textual criticism is. When they put together a translation of the Bible, textual criticism is the critical thinking and looking at the, the, the manuscripts that were used for that translation. So, um, I am not attacking the King James Bible. I'm just using it as it's a prominent example. There are very other translations that do this. So, um, the older the manuscript is, the earlier that we can date the manuscript, the more reliable that it is because it's closer to the originals. So, in textual criticism, when you have an older manuscript, an earlier manuscript that does not have a verse in it, and then it, you, you see verses appear in later manuscripts and text, it's because um, it's probably been added by a scribe at some point. So the King James does this. The King James Bible was written 400 years before we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls are actually older and closer to the originals than that what was used for the King James Bible. So in the King James Bible, those, for those 12 verses in Mark 16, Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 are there and they are not treated with an asterisk. Um, if you're using an ESV Bible that we use here uh, at Calvary, you will see that there's a bracketed 
asterisks about verses um, 12, or I'm sorry, 9 through 20. Those verses were not in the older, earlier manuscripts. Um, and so uh, textual criticism always says that the older manuscripts, the, the, the earlier manuscripts are always going to be the ones that are the most faithful because they are closer to the date of the originals. So now, if, if and, and here's the problem when you deal with textual criticism. So if, if we say that Mark 9, or Mark 16, 9 through 20 are not divinely inspired, you're not taking away anything from, from Scripture by not using those verses. Um, and the percentage that it happens in Scripture is under 1% that the, the older manuscripts don't have verses that are in there. It's only a few places in the, in the Bible where it says these verses were not in the older manuscripts. And so in being faithful to the older um, the earlier manuscripts, we, we look at Mark's gospel, that Mark's gospel ends at the empty tomb. And, and it actually makes more sense when you look at the way Mark wrote. Mark wrote, boom, boom. I mean, it was just that, that. And he doesn't give a lot of explanation to anything. And suddenly at the end, he, he's given these explanation points that just, they just don't even fit with the way that Mark writes typically because Mark is very just... And pop, 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 pop. It just happened. It happened. It happened. It happened. It happened. And and when you look at and it ha and it ha and it happened. I mean, it is literally what you know a lot of what Mark's gospel is. And so that's why then that we would argue that only Luke really truly talked about the ascension, um, because when we look at those textual criticisms and look at the the older, more original manuscripts. Um, so now I've chased my little rabbit trail um, done my geography lesson done some uh, biblical lesson but we also then um, we look back to our text and, and most of our Bibles mine included your Bible if you'll, if you'll see it has a delineation of there's a little section title so mine says the ascension starts at verse 6 which is probably what everyone else's does. Section titles in the scriptures are not divinely inspired. They are manly inspired. Or womanly, if there was a woman on the, on the, uh, the translation committee. Um, but, and it's the same way that chapter and verses are not divinely inspired. It doesn't say that they're not helpful, but they're just not divinely inspired. Luke, Paul, they didn't set out and they wrote chapter 1. The promise of the Holy Spirit. They just wrote. It was a letter. Um, the only ones where we see that there was an actually an introduction is in the Psalms. And so when you read the Psalms, those introductions, the, the councils that decided to put verses and stuff on them actually don't call them verses. But in the, in the ancient Hebrew text, those words are right there in the Psalms. And so... Whenever I read the Psalms, I read those titles. They are, they are uh, titles that David used or the other psalmist used to, uh, to tell how it would flow or whatever. But it was, so those are the only times we're subject uh, or, you know. But 
it, it, to, it doesn't take away from the scriptures. Um, it does add some clarity, but I, I think here um, they, they kind of get it wrong, and I'll show you why they get it wrong. So Luke 24, 44 through 53 is the only other mention of any, of any kind, again, of the ascension. And so this actually is a, it, it is a seamless working of Luke's first letter and Luke's second letter to Theophilus that we see this beautiful, it's not like, so sometimes in the Gospels we see different viewpoints of the same story. But here Luke is, is perfectly connecting. And this is why I think verses 4 and 5 are also the morning of the ascension. So Luke 24, 44 through 53, then he said to them, and we know that he's talking about Jesus, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Again, Bethany is a slope two miles southeast of Jerusalem. It's a two-mile walk. Um, so it would still be like the suburbs of the city of Jerusalem. So since the words in Luke in chapter 24, verse 49, and the words in Acts 1-4, Pinned, also pinned by Luke under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they are the exact same words that he tells them to stay in Jerusalem until the, the Holy Spirit falls upon them and they are given power. Um, it makes sense that this is the exact same conversation. This is not two tellings of Luke's conversation or Jesus' conversation. This is the same telling. So it is very likely that on their two-mile trek out to Bethany, Jesus is telling them, okay, after the Holy Spirit, stay in the city right there, in the city right there that you can see, and you will be equipped by the Holy Spirit because these are the exact same words that we see in Luke 24 and in Acts 1-4. Um, and so it makes sense that he's having this final conversation with them. He knows he is going out. He knows that this is his time to leave. And so these are his final instructions that he is giving to 11 men who he is charging with taking his church to the nations. So when we see this, we see this seamless conversation taking place that Luke is recording again to Theophilus. So, now that we've gotten through all that, we can start the sermon. 
So if you are a note taker, I do have three alliterative points for my sermon. Uh, Acts 1, verses 4 through 12, we have the confusion. We have the commandment. And we have the culmination. Or at least the promise thereof. You know, I had to get a, I had to get a, a C in there. So the confusion... Acts 1, 4 through 6. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? These 11 men, Judas by this point is dead. He's committed suicide. These 11 men are still confused. They have been with Jesus for the better part of three years before his death, burial, and resurrection. They have been with him on and off for 40 days after the resurrection. Now, we do know that part of their minds were open. Their minds were open to the scriptures. Jesus clearly says that in Luke 24, 44 through 49, and I'll read that again. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That, the salvation story, basically Jesus opened their minds to the scriptures, the same thing that he did to the two men who were walking with him on the road to Emmaus. But their minds were not yet open because they still were confused and they were looking to the geopolitical nation of Israel. Paul is very clear in Romans uh, 8 and 9 and not all of Israel is Israel. So you have this geopolitical nation of Israel. And then inside of the geopolitical nation of Israel, you have those of Israel whom are part of the eternally elect of all time. And just like Gentiles are part of the eternally elect of all time. That's why Paul says there is no Jew, there is no Greek. He's talking about in the eternally elect of all time. And yet... The disciples, Jesus has been resurrected, and they still are confused. Why? Because they don't have the Holy Spirit yet in, 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 in dwelling them. Nobody up to this point, with probably maybe the exception of King David, because King David has said, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So it is possible that King David was indwelt by the Holy Spirit in his life. But nobody else at this point has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would rest upon them to do ministry and different things, but nobody 
really that we can definitively say, except again, possibly David, at this point has had the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And there's a reason why. Because Jesus was still with them. And so a lot of, most everything that they're still doing, they are doing in their own strength and in their own mind. And so they are still confused about, you're going to restore the kingdom. And Jesus doesn't even answer their question, as Jesus often does. He answers their question with answers that they didn't ask for. But he answers the question based on God's nature, which is what he always does, which is why it infuriates the Pharisees and the Sadducees all throughout the, the, the Gospels, uh, that he won't answer them the way that they want him to answer because he always knows that their questions are asked in a trap. And so this brings us then to the second point, the commandment. Acts, seven, or Acts 1, 7 through 8. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Jesus said, Your question... Not that he's belittling them or demeaning them, but he says your question basically is wrong. I'm not going to even answer it. What I am going to tell you is don't worry about that. Your focus is on me. Your focus is on me, not on what happens with Israel, not on what happens in, in, in any other situation. Your focus is on me. And that's the same thing that we see in John's final recording at the where, where Peter is restored because Peter looks back and says, well, what about him? And Jesus' response to Peter, and he's talking about John because John always referred to himself as the disciple who was loved. Sometimes you're like, John, just say it was me. Just, just own it. But obviously he was writing under the Holy Spirit. And, and Jesus' response to Peter at the same thing was, it was the same. He said, what does it matter about him? If, if he is alive until the day I come back, who cares? Your focus is not on him. Your focus is on me. And then John even writes after that. Now, Jesus didn't say that this disciple would not die. But he said, so what? And that's the same thing that Jesus is saying here when they ask him, are you going to restore Israel? And Jesus says, I'm going to answer a question you didn't ask. Because that's not the focus. The focus is on me. And soon enough, shortly, in just a few days, and they didn't know that that few days would be ten, in just a few days, I will give you the gift that is promised from the Father, the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses. And you will do it in Judea. You will do it in Jerusalem. You will do it in Judea. You will do it in Samaria where your enemies are, and you will do it globally. So I don't often do this, but I, I think it's important here. Um, the verbs uh, will be and will receive are written in the future middle voice. So if you're not an English teacher, you're like, 
I don't, I don't know what that really means. So we have verb voices in English. We just don't, we don't go out and we don't talk about our verb voices, but we do. We, we typically have a, an active verb voice. We have a passive verb voice. Well, the Greek had what was called a middle verb voice. And so uh, just taking this from a Greek textbook, so the active voice is the subject causes the action. So an example would be, I move the car. The passive voice is that the subject receives the consequences of the action. The car was moved. It was the passively receiving. So the middle voice is this. The subject is part or all of the action. In other words, the subject is both the cause and the focus, the agent and the experience of a verbal action. I moved myself. And so these voices in, the, in these two verbs are written in the future. They're going to happen and in the middle voice. So basically what Jesus is saying here is because I have chosen you and then given you the faith to follow after me in not many days, the Holy Spirit will be given to you. And once that happens, you will be enabled and compelled to be a powerful witness for me. They play a role in the action of the verb that Jesus is talking about. Now, obviously not the, 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 the giving of the Holy Spirit, but there is both where they are the agent and the receiver of the verb, and that's why it's used in the middle voice. We get our word dynamite from this word power. Um, that's what that's what kind of that's the kind of witness that God says you will be. You will have power to be an, an explosive witness for me. And here's the rest of the commandment. Again, it'll be in Jerusalem. It'll be right where you're at. It'll be in Judea. It'll be amongst your family, your friends, your coworkers. It will be in Samaria. You will be witnesses to your enemies. And it means globally. This is not... So when Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will come, and we know that to be 10 days, um, this is not prescriptive for all new believers that come to Jesus Christ. Um, this is not how it has to be. This is not a prescribed way that this will be, that you will have to wait to receive the Holy Spirit. This is only right now at this intertransitional period between the Old Testament, between the New Testament, and between the birthing of the church. Uh, so this is descriptive. This is merely describing what happened to them because we have the promise now that when someone becomes a Christ follower, immediately... They are filled with the Holy Spirit immediately. Paul gives us this in Romans 8, 5 through 9. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so we have the promise that when we become Christ followers, we are immediately filled with the Spirit and we are pleasing to the Lord because that's what the work of the Spirit does. Now, I have to, I have to say this in love. If you are not enabled and compelled to be a powerful witness for Christ, then maybe you should check to, to see if you're truly saved. Or if not, maybe you're walking in absolute disobedience and you need to repent of the, of the disobedience. And then now we get to the culmination. We've had the confusion of the 11. We've had the commandment of what will happen, where they're to go, what they're to do, and then the Holy Spirit will come upon them, and then the commandment following once they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And now the culmination, or at least the promise of the culmination, Acts 1, 9 through 12. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Uh, the reason it was called a Sabbath day journey, it's only two miles. It would not have been considered in the Old Testament. It would not have been considered labor on the Sabbath. Much more than that would have been considered labor, which was forbidden on the Sabbath. At first, they were, they were awestruck, and they worshipped him. And we see this in part of Luke 24, where it said they worshipped him after he was taken up. But then at some point, they just kept looking up. Maybe there was probably, they were still in that confusion, okay, Maybe now he'll come right back and set up Israel again. We don't really know what they were doing, but they were standing there in the sky long enough that two angels rebuked them. What are you doing? He told you to go wait in Jerusalem. Go be obedient. Again, they're still doing it in their own flesh because the Spirit does not indwell them yet. And so then they head back to Jerusalem. And we, we, these are probably the same two angels that were at the empty tomb because their description, it's shimmering, it's, it's, it's a, it's a un, un, unworldly, uh, otherworldly shimmering is how that, those robes are described. Now, it might not be the same two uh, angels that were at the empty tomb, but there were two angels at the empty tomb, there were two angels here, and they were both described. So if they weren't the same angels, they were at least angels. And just as Luke started Acts as a seamless transition from his gospel, 
again, we see this seamless transition finishing out in Luke 24, 50 through 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him. And then now we insert the part from Acts. They, they were rebuked. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. So they go back, and um, again, they don't realize it, but it's 10 more days that they're going to be without the Holy Spirit. They're without Jesus, and they're without the Holy Spirit for 10 more days. And so we see at the end of the 10 days, they are kind of huddled in fear. There's 120 of them, and we'll get to this in Acts chapter 2. But Penta means 50. So the 50th day from Jesus' resurrection is Pentecost. And so we know that Acts said that he was with them for 40 days. So 10 more days. Uh, we don't even have to go to new math to get that. We can, we can subtract 50 and 40 and get 10. So again, up to this point, the disciples have been doing everything in their own strength. Even when Jesus was with them, they were in their own strength. Jesus is now gone. Ten days are coming. We're going to see that they actually do some business in, the, in, in these ten days. They, they choose one to replace Judas, as Pastor Scott will get into next week. But things are about to change in ten days, and they don't know the change that's coming. And we, these last two verses that I want to look at, this is a promise that Jesus gave in John chapter 14, verses 26 through 27. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, Neither let them be afraid. Jesus is telling them, there's something that's going to happen that I couldn't, I didn't even do while, you were, while I was here with you, that he will teach you all things. Christ has opened their minds to the scriptures, but he's promising that the Holy Spirit, you need me to leave so that the Holy Spirit can do the work that the Holy Spirit was designed to do. And this last text in John 16, 5 through 15. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged past tense i still have many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority but whatever he hears he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come 
he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus chose in his divinity to have his omnipresence limited by our physical flesh. He condescended. He came to us and walked amongst us in our flesh. So Jesus, by his own choosing to limit his divinity, could not be in every place all the time. He could only be in one place. And yet, Jesus says, it is better for me to leave. You know, I hear people all the time say, you know what, if Jesus was just here right now, I would be a better Christian. If I could sit here and look at Jesus, I would be a better Christian. I would not do the garbage. If I just had Jesus here, Jesus says, no! Because I am chosen to limit myself in flesh. But the Holy Spirit is not. We, if you are a Christ follower, you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you. That is then something wonderful to rejoice that the living God would put his spirit in you and equip you to do all the things that he has commanded you to do in Scripture. In the New Testament, even, there are still commands. And there are commands for us going forward. This is what the Christian life should look like. This is the promise of God. And not only is it a promise of God, he has shoved his spirit down in us to make it happen. And we don't have to do it in our own strength ever again. We actually are the recipients of, of something that all the Old Testament believers looked forward to. We are a recipient of something that the scripture says that the angels look to us and, and are wowed in amazement. We are in a position that after our death, we will actually be above the angels because God has put his Holy Spirit within us eternally. That is what changed these 11 guys. Ten days later, this is what changed them, that they were now filled with the Holy Spirit and the same Holy Spirit that indwelled them and empowered 11 and then replaced by the 12 men to explode the church, to take it globally, is the same Spirit that dwells in you if you are a Christ follower. Amen. So there's no sin. There's no addiction. There's no, I can't do it. If you have the Holy Spirit living within you, you have the power and the authority that God has said that his spirit will do. Take that as a reassurance and, and an encouragement because 
if we had to do it in our own strength, and I will leave you with this, we would look like the confused disciples who walked with Jesus for three years, who walked with the resurrected Christ and on and off for 40 days. And that's what we would look like the rest of our lives. But we don't have to if we are born again. We have a new spirit within us, and it's God's spirit. And he empowers us to be and enable us to be dynamic and dynamite witnesses for him. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that not based on anything in us, we were dead, we were your dead enemies, and you eternally elected us as part of the elect of all time to be your emboldened, dynamite, powerful witnesses that you said, we will, it will happen. And you gave us your Holy Spirit to make sure that your commission happens, making much about you amongst our, where we live, amongst our family, amongst our friends, amongst our enemies, to the, to the ends of the earth. Everybody needs the gospel every day, whether we are believers or whether we are dealing with unbelievers. Everybody needs to hear the gospel. And so, Father, we are so thankful that you have chosen to do this in our lives. This is the way that you have chosen to get your name glorified. Imperfect people, but filled with a perfect spirit. Father, I don't know where everybody is today. I don't know if there's anyone in here who's an unbeliever. Lord, I pray that you would arrest them today and don't let them leave as an unbeliever. Lord, if there are people here today who are just not being obedient to the call, Lord, I pray that you would encourage them and say, you know what? I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to get with somebody who does and they're going to they're going to take me and show me how to be a bold witness. Father, for those who are, who are continually living the spirit-filled life, Lord, I pray that you just continue to encourage them and strengthen them to keep on keeping on. Father, we bless you and we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.